Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I am with my co-host, Matt Scott. And today, we're going to talk about... The Defender. The new Defender. This is pretty exciting. Matt and I are actually recording this podcast from Johannesburg, South Africa. I've spent about a week cruising around the country, and Matt spent over a week. Yeah, I was in Namibia for for two weeks, including the trip that we did with Land Rover in northwestern Namibia to, I guess, prove the Defender and see if it's worth its metal. And you picked up a 79 series or something? Like yeah, that? yeah. I guess the exact opposite of, of the Defender it was a, an HZJ 79 with the 1HZ diesel in it. It was very slow, but, you know, a very dependable vehicle. It's hard to argue with that choice, you know, for Africa. But you know, we're here to talk about the new Defender, which takes a completely different approach than that tried and tested Land Cruiser that I was in. You know, it's completely independent air suspension. It has an electrically supercharged turbocharged engine available, as well as a diesel and I want to say turbocharged V6. Um, that's the P300, P400. And straight six, right? Straight six. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I was Straight six is our guest making a comeback. <laughs> yeah, they are. So, which is good. I can see that more yeah. and more vehicles are doing straight fives, straight sixes. I like that. So, I think to start, you know, one of the things to get out of the way, it was it was a legitimate four wheel drive trip. It was um, even in our. I, I want to say we had about ten or twelve days in Namibia. I don't think we could have done some of the trails that we did in the seventy nine, even though it was it was locked, heavy kind of lack of power, and it really made me appreciate that Defender and. I guess we're going to get into the details of it. The Defender did really well in this yeah. one, for sure. I mean, that's what I would say is Land Rover did a great job of picking a route that would have been something that Matt and I would have would have done ourselves yes. on an overland trip. In fact, when I was in Namibia the last time with Expedition 7, this route that I did just did with the Defender was my second choice for the country, which included Van Zell's Pass and the Horacib and the Skeleton Coast. Uh, for Expedition 7, we ended up having a rare opportunity to go through the dunes out to the Skeleton Coast, so we did that. But this trip is very legitimate. Overlanders from around the world come to Namibia to do this route. It's considered a very challenging route, very remote. Uh, there's, there's almost no support. We had to bring fuel with us and extra tires with us. Um, and we were all on our own. This was not a fully scripted uh, media drive. This was a true backcountry overland adventure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they use the term expedition for something like this, which I think is okay because they do include a lot of support for local charities and local communities. So there was, it was overlanding with a purpose. So I think you can apply uh, the term expedition if, to if it. If not the purpose of proving this vehicle. I mean, this was the first... The, the first opportunity for, for people outside of Land Rover to drive and prove this vehicle. Um, yeah, I mean, how many Americans did you have in your group? I believe there are, including your group, there are eight Americans total. total. Yeah, so there's there's only been eight people in the U.S. that have experienced this vehicle. And Matt and I are pretty lucky to have both been. So two, of the, two out of the eight are on this yeah. podcast today. And... Matt and I did it in two different waves, which I think was also good because we were able to form a lot of opinions separately. Normally, Matt and I do these these drives together where we can expand upon impressions. But I think it was neat talking with Matt over the last couple of days about the things that he saw stand out and the things that I saw stand out. So when we typically evaluate a vehicle, we're looking at a couple criteria, and this is what we're going to go through in the podcast today. We look at technical terrain performance. We look at dirt road performance. So what's the difference between those two? Technical terrain, think low range. Yeah. Uh, very low traction. lockers. Correct. Um, where you're maximizing the need for ground clearance and you're maximizing the need for tractive performance. Uh, dirt road performance is what most of us do when we're traveling from point to point in a backcountry adventure. This can be a gravel road. This could be a higher speed Jeep two track. This could be a sandy two track. Uh, we did um, the Marion Fluce Valley, which was a big wide open 
salt pan that was very fun to drive, yeah, really high, cool. high speed, very interesting terrain to travel in because we were traveling in tracks of Land Cruisers, which are narrower than the Defender. So it gave us some good insights into traceability and predictability of the vehicle handling. But dirt road performance, think about everything from traveling at 25, 30 miles an hour, all the way up to full-blown rally car yeah, <laughs> speeds, yeah. which we which we were pushing uh, on the on the route from Sesfontaine yeah. back back to Apuo, so. And I guess one of the the downsides of the trip, I guess, was, is, you know, Scott was able to drive the vehicle on road. The way these trips work is, you you know, you're, you're partnered with another journalist um, and, you know, you, you, you take turns. And unfortunately, I wasn't actually able to drive on the pavement, so... I won't comment, but the pavement drive was pretty short. four or five kilometers long, yeah. um, which is actually quite impressive because the entire trip was 650 to 700 kilometers, it depending was. on the route. So that is, it wasn't a trip where we were just driving down regular roads and, and, and taking some photos. I've seen uh, some flack for the Defender that this is a, you know, a very staged trip, and, and I would not say that no. it was at all. You know, we got these vehicles stuck. Um, we winched, we max traxed, we, you know, we actually put them to the test. Um, no question. I, again, in, in comparison for everybody, we afterwards in this, in the Land Cruiser did pretty much all the major stuff in Namibia. Um, we did 3000 kilometers, about 2,500 of which were on dirt or, or trails or, or technical trails. And on this this Coca Land expedition, as Land Rover was calling it, that was by far the most technical terrain that I traversed in Namibia. It was legitimate. It was the most remote. If something went wrong, um, there there may have actually been consequences. Obviously, mm-hmm. Land Rover is very professional and um, well prepared and yeah. well prepared. But it was a legitimate four wheel drive trip. It was if you were to rent a car and go do this, it would be a bucket list trip. Is, yeah. is the way I would say it. And in fact, if you want to learn a little bit more about Land Rover planning and logistics behind Overland Adventures like this. Take a listen to podcast number 11, where I spent some time with David Sneath, who is the expedition leader for this trip, and then Emma Easter, who handled a lot of the logistics. I think that's some really interesting lessons that can come from how Land Rover plans and executes uh, on a trip. And then the next thing that we're going to talk about is driving comfort, which I think is a really critical factor for traveling out of the vehicle. Uh, Then we're going to talk about capacity a little bit, and then we'll wrap up with durability and reliability before Matt and I give our final conclusions on the car. So let's start off with the technical terrain performance, Matt. What was your your impressions on the car? Because we kind of hit, we went right into Venzel's Right into it, right into it. You know, um, day one, you know, we, we, we got, we got to the start of the trip, which is in Northern Namibia, and it was kind of a, you know, fast dirt road, which we'll get to later, and then... Boom, right into Vanzil's Pass. We camped at Vanzil's Pass, so it was... Awesome campsite. Yeah, fantastic campsite. I have to say that I walked into this vehicle really skeptical. I mean, I I think unlike some, I, I want this vehicle to succeed. I want Land Rover to, to sell this so they can so they can recognize there's a market for four-wheel drive and Overland products and, and continue developing that. I, I think the people who are betting against this vehicle are betting against their own interests. But I was, I was, I was, I like to think I was healthily skeptical and I think it's important to, to do that. I mean, but as a journalist, you have to, you have to have your, you know, those ethics and you have to look after that reader. And it was, it was better than I expected, I guess is what I'm getting at. I, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't really expecting much. I had, I had seen some photos previously of were you thinking like slightly better version of an LR4? Is that yeah, kind of what you were thinking? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I didn't think that it would be drastically better. Yeah. You know, the ability to have that rear locker, the traction control is again another, it's another leap above above what we had previously experienced. It is. Um, it's a very easy car to drive smooth. You know, I think that's maybe even, even a, a downside to it is, the car really is working. It's a very smart vehicle. You'll, you'll hear me use the kind of the analogy of analog versus digital. Um, Land Cruiser I was driving, for example, very analog vehicle. 100% analog. Yeah, 100% analog. But uh, there's so much emphasis placed on that that analog thing. But a lot has happened in 30 years. It's 2020. Yeah. It's 2020. You know, our, our phones, you know, know how many steps we walk up. Like they track us. I, I, everything is, is is relatively smart. Electronics are reliable now. True. You know, when's the last time your cell phone broke? 
But yeah, so it was just, uh, again, it's that analog digital thing. It takes a bit to get used to. And you do, I, I want to say, surrender a little bit of that driver experience. But yeah, I, I, I thought it was quite capable. You know, Scott and I previously were talking, yeah, we, we think we could do the Rubicon in this. It would need rock sliders. That's um, it. Which would be very easy to mm-hmm. fit. Yeah, and put um, some LT tires on it. And, and put an, a, a light truck construction tire. And, and there's reasons for that. I mean, and to your point about the analog versus digital, after you made that point, I thought about it more. And as long as it's delivering either on a promise or it's executing on a, a function that improves the driver experience when you're giving up something else, then I think that it makes more sense. And, I, and in many ways, you're making a vehicle like this very accessible to a new driver. Yeah. Someone without a lot of driving experience is going to have a lot better backcountry experience with this vehicle because it is so capable. And then you give up a lot of fatigue. So it was so comfortable. Yeah. In particular, the, I noticed that the steering was very light. This was early on in the day on Vanzel's pass. So I mentioned it to one of the engineers. I said, the the steering is very vague. It's very digital. um, And it's very light. And so I wasn't getting any feedback from the terrain, the rocks or anything else like it was not giving that typical minor vibration, minor steering wheel movement that's telling you what the terrain is providing as an input to the vehicle. Wasn't getting almost any of that. So I talked to the engineer and he's like, well, if it's light, that's no problem. We can fix that. And he goes into the screen and he changes in the custom configurator. He changes the steering to heavy. And then I got that heavy weight that I wanted. It's all user accessible. It's, It's pretty amazing. But you do give up some of that trail feedback, but then you gain driver comfort and you gain a, a reduction in in fatigue, which I think is is a plus. So it's there's a plus and a minus to everything. In this case, there's not just a minus. There's actually a, a plus that comes along with it. So on the technical terrain performance, I give it a, a 3.75 out of 5, um, which is our standard rating scale. And there's a couple reasons for that. The all of the angles are excellent. So you can get up to 11.9, 11.5 inches of ground, ground clearance. clearance. Uh, you've got about a 40 inch departure angle. And then what was the approach on this one? Have a yeah. look. <laughs> Matt's going to take a look. 38 degree approach angle and a 28 degree breakover angle. Yeah, so we're, really good. we're in that Wrangler territory. For sure. The articulation is quite good for an independent front and rear vehicle. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to note that, our, you know, articulation isn't as important. Articulation traditionally on a, again, I'll use that analog vehicle, analog, you know, analogy, this vehicle can have tires in the air and it, it, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because the vehicle doesn't surprise the driver. So one of the things that we use as an ultimate indicator of technical terrain performance is driver confidence. And one of the things that hurts driver confidence is when the vehicle responds unpredictably, which means when the rear tire gets in the air, when you lift a wheel and it pops up very aggressively, right? That, when that surprises the it's driver, very predictable, very predictable, very stable. The hood stays very flat. Um, and part of the reason why it has such good articulation is because is because of the fact that the airbags are cross-linked, which means at lower speeds, a valve opens. And when one tire compresses up into the wheel well, it forces air pressure out of that bag and into the down wheel. So it actually creates this forced articulation that overcomes the stability that the anti-roll bars provide. And it also allows to keep those tires on the ground. So the articulation is very good for an independent vehicle. The thing that I noticed in technical terrain is the lack of head toss. And that's all due to that independent rear suspension. Rather than having that beam axle that's transmitting that energy to one side of the vehicle or the other, it's transmitting it closer to the center axis of that vehicle. Um, and it's it's really comfortable. More straight up and down. Yeah, it was it was so fascinating. Um, I, I walked into this probably like a lot of you guys are um, very skeptical of independent rear suspension, and I walked away from it. You know, again with that analog versus digital argument, it is in a lot of ways better. You, you, there's going to be some things where you'd have to work a little bit more, you know, with the Defender. But I enjoy that. I mean, I 
I, I kept saying in the vehicle, it, it's like the gentleman's Wrangler. It's very capable, but it's very comfortable. It's very civilized and like no dust inside. Zero I mean, dust. I mean, yeah. we're guys, we were going through very dusty conditions, very muddy conditions. Um, Namibia has been in a seven year drought. And I know these are juxtaposed, but please understand Namibia is a juxtaposed place. One place will get 10 millimeters of rain in a decade. And then across that mountain range, it will be raining. So we were able to experience both, um, particularly in the river that we were going through. Yeah, the Horacib. The Horacib, like nothing. Yeah. It was no doubt. I mean, it was, you were, you were so removed in a good way. You know, we were doing 10 hour days in the driving days in the vehicle and, and I walked out great. I mean, yeah, I think when it comes to technical terrain performance, I look at it that there is probably 3% of my travels that have required more capability than what the defender has. And that would be something like crossing Antarctica, crossing Greenland, where we had to build highly specialized vehicles. Any of those other locations, most of the time, the defender will do a better job. Some of the time it will struggle a little bit more than a Wrangler. But what I think that is important to recognize is that if you compare it to the previous defender, it's infinitely more. Capable. Oh God, it's so much better. It's infinitely more capable. And for the for the listeners, I drive a Defender One Ten. I, I have a Defender One Ten in the fleet, and that vehicle would have struggled to cross a lot of the terrain that the new Defender did with ease. And I don't think it would have made it through the Horacid River. It would have been hard. It would have been yeah. very difficult. I mean, you would have had to winch. I mean, to be fair, some of the defenders. New defenders um, had to winch, but you would have been you would have been working. It would have it would have taken everything I had in the well, <laughs> yeah, to get that vehicle through. You there. definitely could do it, but it would be it would have been much more difficult. And I would and here's another th- couple things that would have changed. I would have been spent at the end of the day, yeah, and I would have done it at half of the speed. Yes. So and it's not like we were we were aggressive. being aggressive. I mean, we were we were just easily. Traveling through the terrain at twice the speed yeah, that I would have the, driven. The, the limit is just higher. It's much um, higher. And the base is higher. Um, it is much higher. Yeah. So overall, I think that for me, and, and I, Matt will give his thoughts to summarize technical terrain performance. But for me, it ended up being driver confidence, very predictable highly tractable, uh, very stable, no surprises out of the vehicle, but it does lack that last three, four percent of capability that you would get from a Wrangler, particularly if you wanted to modify it for extreme, extreme terrain. But then you get outside of the scope of most overland travel, or you just be, you're just talking about recreational four-wheeling. Yes. And that's not what this podcast is about. So this is about uh, vehicle-based travel. And in that regard for technical p- terrain performance, I give it a 3.75 out of five and I was really happy with it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'd probably rate it just a bit higher. I'd probably give it a four out of five. My motivation is travel. My motivation is experience. It's culture. That's what overlanding is to me. I know I rag on about that, but overlanding is not the Rubicon. Overlanding is not triple bypass shocks and 37s, even though I might have some of that stuff. But yeah, it was it was a very comfortable vehicle. It was very capable. I think for a traveler, it's more than you would ever need. Yeah. Um, you know, I think where this trail that we did, Van Zills Pass, um, which I think is kind of the basis of a lot of this, this technical terrain performance discussion, that is about... It's about as much as I would do as a traveler if I was on an extended trip. Um, that remote, I, for sure. That remote, um, there there would be real consequences to you. I mean, there were uh, there was one obstacle, kind of a shelf where the the left front kind of goes down into a hole, um, and you didn't really realize how much the vehicle was working for you. And then you pass that, and you look down, and there was two rolled vehicles down there. There was a Hilux down there. And an um, old Land Cruiser. And an old Land Cruiser yeah. down there that that had rolled. Um, you know, so that that to me shows that it was a legitimate trail. I, I think if you can roll a vehicle, it's 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 technical and this thing cruised through it. And for those that are listening that might say, oh, it looks like you guys only went down Van Zell's pass, just know that this via- the new Defender was also taken up the pass by some of the uh, the scouts during yeah, the Yeah, re- and the first the half of the trip did have some, 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 some pretty climbs. decent climbs. It did, it did absolutely. Um, it is easiest the way we went. Yep. Yeah. Overall, very favorable. Very much so. Now, 
What do you think on the dirt road performance? A lot of smiles for me. A lot of smiles for me. Um, I having some time to reflect. Um, and again, I'm going back to this, this land cruiser that I was immediately driving afterwards because I don't think anybody would argue that the, that 79 series is a bad choice. It's arguably the 70 is the golden staple. We're doing a hundred, 120, I think on a, you know, in a closed course section, I was cruising at a 150 and we didn't even realize it. my drive partner and I looked over like, Oh, I should slow down. And it wasn't that we were even pushing the vehicle. It's just, it's that well dampened. The suspension really, really works. It's very comfortable. These were roads that same exact, I mean, some of these were the exact same roads that I was struggling in this 79 series to do 70 kilometers an hour. Sure. Um, if I was at, you know, that, that engine, particular engine is about a 4,000 RPM redline. If I was at 3,500, I could maybe do 85. So if that's just a way to kind of, cross compare for for the listeners its breadth of capability is pretty good it was i don't know that was that was the most impressive thing for me was its dirt road performance if it, i was, was looking for a technical terrain performer i'd probably still go with a wrangler if that was if i was seeking out recreational very remote, recreational four-wheel driving but yeah you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't pay me to drive anything else over just extended dirt roads. I mean, it is very comfortable. It's very comfortable. And there, and there's some technical reasons for that, that we we'd like to go into. So you're not hearing just our, the summary of our opinions, but the vehicle being four wheel independent, all of those inputs are being isolated typically to just a single wheel. That's the problem with a beam axle, a Land Cruiser in particular. Having I've got I've got hundreds of thousands of kilometers <laughs> in, in Land in Land Cruisers, and any time that, for example, the right front wheel has an event on the on a road, a lot of that energy is being translated across the entire beam axle, which is translated into the driver, and it also affects the vehicle's handling. So it can interrupt the chassis. It can also interrupt traction and it can affect braking. So for example, there are several, what I consider gold standard tests for tractive performance and for limit handling capability of a vehicle on a dirt road. So what I do is a series of tests. The first one is vehicle stability control on emergency lane change. Uh, the vehicle stability control was very predictable. It did come on quite aggressively when I did a very aggressive lane change because the vehicle was beginning to oversteer. So back right corner slows down, straightens the vehicle out, um, and it did do that relatively aggressively. Anything less than that, uh, very predictable, and most drivers wouldn't even know that it's happening. Then I did vehicle stability control off. One of the things that I want to a vehicle to be able to do is turn off VSC and allow for some yaw and allow for some oversteer and allow for some even controlled understeer trail braking, all of those dynamic characteristics that make it really fun to drive a car like this off-road and can actually, with the right skills, make the vehicle perform better and safer. So with vehicle stability control off, it did allow for a lot of fun. Yeah, um, uh, that's one, a area, lot of rotation. one area where maybe I would disagree a little bit. I, I, I did think that regardless of the drive mode that I was in, when I turned that stability control off, it was... It was still on, and I and I can. Yeah, it still doesn't go really, off. It doesn't go off completely. Yeah, I noticed it particularly in sand. You know, we were my drive partner and I definitely in the particularly the diesel model experienced a lot of head toss in sand because, you know, as Scott previously mentioned, a lot of these these tracks are are driven by Land Cruisers that have a a, a narrower track width, so you you didn't necessarily fit into the ruts. And the vehicle is just trying to keep you in the ruts too much, even though like I just wanted it to go off. You know, the vehicle wasn't having any problems, but, you know, you'd kind of steer left into the rut and then it would break the right front and it would kind of just drag you back and forth into this head even toss. Even with VSC off? Even with it off. Now, and I in will sand say, mode? In sand mode. VSC off, um, got it. And I will say that that was in the diesel, which we won't get when I drove um, very similar conditions. Both my drive partner, Emmy Hall, and I, um, very experienced off-road racer herself, we thought that it was drastically different. So that could be a pre-production issue. There were some minor little pre-production things. When we went to turn the base up, it went down on the stereo. And, and there are some little things, but these were these were you prototypes, know, yeah. essentially prototype vehicles that we were able to drive. So there are some things that I think we're both kind of looking past software-wise. And, and that could be the case because when I was doing the higher speed 
dirt road driving, it was all in the straight six. Mm, yeah. So it may have a different mapping for the VSC. That's very possible. Yeah. But I, in my experience with it, I, f- I found that there was a lot of linearity, a lot of traceability, which means in a large sweeping corner, it was it did a great job of line holding. It didn't favor understeer, which is something that I don't like. Um, a lot of manufacturers do that for safety, but it did not favor understeer. It really very held neutral, very neutral, off-road. really held the line well. I did heavy braking in a corner. That's one of the tests that we always do because let's say a donkey comes out into the road or another vehicle has blown the corner and you need to do an aggressive braking in a corner, what does the vehicle do? Does it lose its mind? And this this car did not lose its mind. In fact, excellent weight transfer to the front axle, very effective braking, ABS intervention, absolutely. Yeah, very little dive, again, because of that yep. air suspension and those those ride height sensors. It's able to, Correct it's able to for compensate it. I, I, one thing I give it five stars on is, is its ABS. Yeah, um, really good. Yeah, I mean... You hardly even know it's... Yeah, I, again, in the Land Cruiser, you know, Oryx runs out, Zebra runs out, emergency stop, and it's just like instantly the ABS kicks in, and on a dirt road, that's not really a good thing. Yeah. Um, where with the Land Rover Defender, it was driver-focused, I felt. Very much so. And it would allow for even some lockup as yeah. long as it wasn't creating an event where the vehicle was understeering or oversteering. Uh, and there was a, a couple other things that I thought were class leading. One of the things that I noticed was the windshield wipers. Did you, I mean, they were the best windshield wipers I've ever seen. In my yeah. Life. Actually, when you think about it, cause going down the horse, they were sip, insane. That was so good. You know, a hundred river crossings or yeah. something. It was, I mean, this is a river that hasn't flown that periodically flows and it was, it was moving. So yeah, like like really, really good. Or if you get dust on the windshield, it, and part of the reason why I think it works so well is they have these huge hoses that go to the sprayers. Yeah, and the so sprayers are fluid, and the sprayers are on the arm. They're not on the hood. So as it's sweeping, it's spraying the surface. So it's getting really good coverage of the of the washer fluid, and it's that seems like a little thing, kind of like not important. But if you think about how much we use our wipers to clear dust. During the, a trip. The, the only place I could see that really kind of being an issue, uh, originally being from Chicago, is spraying that fluid on the on the windshield is is a lifeline sometimes with with ice. I would like to see how that would work for oh, for, sure. for for listeners in colder climates. Yeah, um, heated windshield. Oh yeah, there we go, <laughs> so guys. It has a heated windshield, so it's not really it's an not issue. a problem. Um, yeah, yeah. There we go. I take that back, but extremely low driver fatigue, very easy to drive. So if you're doing even standard speeds on roads like that, you're going to end the day much more relaxed. Oh yeah. Much yeah. less fatigue. If you have an event, animal runs out, kids run, kid runs out after a ball, the vehicle is very predictable and very capable in stopping and avoiding those events. Um, I did notice a little bit more body roll, which I'm thinking is partly due to the fact that there was 150 some odd pounds on the roof, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a, a full spare tire on top. They a little had, bit of fuel, max yeah, tracks. a little bit of fuel, max tracks, a shovel, um, and obviously the roof rack. Yeah. Um, but the Defender has, you know, class leading dynamic and static roof load capability. 370 pound dynamic roof load rating. Yeah. Which so is really, that's your really roof impressive. tent and your roof rack with some with some room to spare. Exactly. Land Rover is going to have a roof tent out, and it is not the cheapest Chinese bidder. It's a I won't say who, but it is a a well-known, well-respected uh, company that is manufacturing it for them. I think that that's kind of cool that they're yeah. taking that um, into consideration. It's an option when you buy the car. That's kind of yeah, cool. Yeah. 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 So overall, the dirt road performance, I think, was good. I'd give it a, a 3.75 to 4. I would give it a four. I was being slightly critical of its dirt road performance. And I'm, I'm acknowledging that, that I've got a little bit of confirmation bias on that because I, I wanted it to handle some of the larger events a little better. So think about like a G out at the bottom of a wash or something like that. I was getting a little bit more porpoising than I would typically like. So very light on rebound. Mm. But after the Land Rover, I talked to the Land Rover engineers, they gave me some feedback on that, that, that definitely lets me 
push it up to the four with an acknowledgement of uh, the lighter rebound. And they, they said they intentionally made the rebound light because they wanted the suspension to react extremely quickly to input. So think about climbing a rocky hill. They wanted the suspension to be very quick to respond to keep tires on the ground. Mm. So they did it with intention. So anytime I notice something that's maybe a little off in a specific scenario and I talk to an engineer about it and they say, we understand that we did it intentionally Here's and this why. is why every um, action. I definitely, yeah, I definitely give them a, a couple points back for that. So I would say that well, I'd probably give it a four on the yeah. road. How about you, Matt? I thought that for a wagon SUV that it was it was really good. I used to have a Raptor. It's it's maybe not as fun to drive as that, but you're not really expecting it to be. But I think there's actually, you know, some scenarios where the defender would 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 happily keep up. Speaking with the engineers, it has a two-inch shock, um, which is a lot of fluid volume. Like quite a bit of quite a bit of fluid volume. I know everybody these days is going to these crazy things. For travelers, a two-inch shock is is money. It's it's kind of the right in the middle. So, you know, you're going to have the durability. I noticed almost zero fade. Yeah. I'm glad I you would, brought that up. It was great. I mean, it, it, I previously thought that the, the gladiator was one of the most comfortable vehicles I had driven on for dirt road performance, long wheelbase, relatively softly sprung, decent valving. The Rubicon comes with the Fox shocks and yeah, this definitely beats that. I I'm, I'm going to give it a four and a half. Nice. Um, I thought that particularly like going through the washes that had just run, there's a lot of square edge bumps. Um, and it was very rounded on those to a point where if you wanted to have a, a, a similar ride quality in that scenario from a, a, a traditionally sprung vehicle, you'd, you'd have to get into shock tuning. Mm-hmm. That was my opinion. Yeah. So four and a half out of five on that one. Yeah, so that's like a class leading dirt road performance for you. And I would say it was very close to that for me. Yeah. It's the I'm, vehicle. I'm trying I want. to think of what would be better, to be honest. Yeah. It's more comfortable than the G Class uh, on in my on, experience. On I dirt mean, roads. mine's mine handles larger events a little better, but that's because it has perfectly tuned shocks. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm still on the stock more shocks re- with more, mine. More um, rebound control. And you have way more up travel. I do. Yeah, I mean it is it is comparable dirt road performance to my modified Gladiator on 37-inch tires with King shocks. Would you say the that the Raptor was better? Yeah. Raptor's, so marginally Raptor's better. better, but the Raptor's also probably 18 inches wider. It's a lot more stressful to drive, a lot more snap over steer. Yeah, this car was so predictable. Yeah, very predictable. I, I'd go into corners hot on purpose. Yeah. Emmy would go to corners. I mean, I mean, it was, it was interesting I did a ton to sit of late breaking, yeah, a lot of trail breaking to sit in the passenger seat with Emmy who, you know, just has won the rebel rally once or twice, mm-hmm. won it last year in a, in a Rolls Royce Cullinan, you know, has competed in the Baja 1000 regularly competes in Desiration. She knows what she's doing. And it was just like, it was comfortable. Yeah. It was, it was, it was very composed. Again, I go back to that gentleman's Wrangler. Yeah. So definitely some good Good points for dirt road performance. Yeah. Like yeah great dirt into road that. performer. If you're the kind of person that is exploring, that is not rock crawling, I think stock for stock, this is... Uh, There's really not much like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, multi-stage airbags. It's, it's finally at a point where it's the technology has matured, in my opinion. Yeah. So those that think this is just an LR4 air suspension underneath there, it's not. It's an all new generation. It's also... There's been some mistakes in saying that this vehicle shares an exact chassis with the Discovery, and it, it, it's actually an entirely different subframe. There is some architecture that is shared with the Discovery, but other than the, the functional architecture, almost every part is different or reinforced for durability. But the, the thing that's most notable is the airbag suspension is multi-stage. So there's multiple diaphragms in there, which allows for it to ramp up rate. So it's, it's think about of it being like a progressive spring. And this was very interesting talking to the engineers. When you had an LR4 and LR3, it would drop at 30 miles an hour, it would drop down to the normal setting on the suspension. And I always thought that was because of vehicle dynamics and center of gravity. And the engineer says, that's a factor, but it's a minor factor. The real reason why they had to drop the air suspension is because the airbags were so hard because of all the pressure in them that it was transmitting tons of force to the suspension components and connections and to the airbag itself. So they could have airbag failures. They could have 
A-arm failures. They could have bushing failures. They could have component failures because it was so rigid yeah. because of the... Now, with this new Defender it being multi-stage and progressive, there are elements of the airbag that are still very compliant despite the fact that you're having larger events. So as a result, and this is very notable, it doesn't lower down to normal mode until 50 miles per hour now, but it's in two stages. So at 30 miles an hour, it drops maybe 20 millimeters. And then at the 50 mile an hour mark, it drops back down completely to the normal range. So you retain a lot of running ground clearance, yeah. even at higher speeds. Yeah. I mean, that that's a big thing, guys. So where before you basically had that one airbag, basically just increasing the rate of with this, they're able to increase the rate of a portion of it and still have the compliance and the original rate of what it, what it would be at a standard. Yeah. Impressive, impressive technology. And it just continues to get better and better since Land Rover puts all of their eggs in the air suspension basket. They spent a lot of R and D and engineering on making it better. And it's really getting good. It really is. They will have a coil sprung steel coil version. We did not get to drive that. But I have to say, I've always argued against people converting Land Rovers, specifically LR3s, LR4s to coil, because you basically end up with a Subaru with low range. You're you're losing that cross-link capability. This vehicle exceeds because of its technology. I think so. And Um, you just want to keep it in good working order. I think once you get up to around that 100,000 mile mark, you should probably look at swapping out airbags. Yeah. And and, and to be fair, coil springs wear out too. Coil springs sag. They do. They just don't have the same consequence as if they fail. Yeah. So that's for sure. Semi trucks have been running air suspension forever, ever. The, The technology exists. It is durable. So on road performance, dynamic performance. I'm just going to talk about that a little bit because I don't think that we can provide a final allocation on on rating for that because we just simply did not have enough time on the road. But in the four or five kilometers that I drove it on the pavement, I was very aggressive with it. And I did as many of the testing elements as I could. Again, minor body roll. I think a lot of that influenced by the roof load, but very controllable excellent braking in a corner, exceptional stopping performance, particularly out of the straight six model that I was driving at the time, uh, very traceable around corners. This was fortunate, not just a straight section of pavement. It was pretty curvy. So I was able to push it a little bit and it's it would easily outperform a Wrangler in those scenarios. Oh, yeah. And it would also outperform a Forerunner based upon my experience as well, which I would say is its competitors in the space. So on-road performance, we've got to hold off on a final rating on that, but I think it did do a good job dynamically in that short short section that that we had. And then we're going to move on to driver comfort. How do you want to kind of summarize that, Matt, in your opinion? A five and move on. Yeah. It's class class leading. It was very, you know, the interior is great on it. It has that it, it almost looks like a Defender most from the, the front seats. Um, it has that open classic Defender dash. I like it. I, I always, I don't know. I mean, I, I take my wallet out. I take my keys out. I take my phone out when I get into a car. And here there's actually some place to put them, like in my Wrangler or even my G-Class. There's nowhere to put this stuff. With the, uh, with the Defender, the entire dash is essentially hollow. There's plenty of room to put stuff. You can put water bottles. You can put maps. You can put your GPS. Little charging um, ports. Charging ports everywhere. Um, it was definitely very well thought out. I like that magnesium piece that comes all the way across. It's got the Defender on it. Even the, even the infotainment screen looks like an iPad. If you think about how we travel as overlanders, yeah. oftentimes we've got a RAM mount that's holding our iPad yeah. that we're using to navigate. It's like it was meant to be there. I, I will say like my experience with Land Rover's infotainment has has not been the best. I think it's a little bit too design focused and a little bit buggy. Um, these were pre-production vehicles, so I won't leave a final comment on that. But definitely better than previous models. Yeah, that's experience. better than previous models. They have an option of a front bench seat, so three seats up front. I like that. Really cool. I don't know if I would do that. <laughs> yeah, um, I would want. I would want to do it. Yeah, but I don't know that I would actually need it. But I just think it's so cool that they have a center seat option, which harkens back to the original yeah, series yeah. series truck. 
And when the seat's down, it's got all those little charge ports in the back. It's got a couple cup holders. And I can't remember. Did my series have a center a center seat? I some think? of them do. Yeah. I can't remember if mine did. Yeah. A lot of people swap them out for a center for, console, but yeah. originally they came with three seats in the front. Yeah. My, my favorite option for that center console is what I will call the sunken center console with without the seat, without the full center console. I, I had plenty of places to put cameras, phones, yeah. cup holders, all that kind of stuff. It still allowed you to get to the back of the vehicle. It would be great if people had kids or dogs. I looked at it at my dog. I'm like, well, sweet, my dog can... Kind of come hang out up front. That would be a nice setup. And then if you yeah. wanted to stick a fridge between the front you, seats, yeah, you, could. you you easily could. It was. Yeah. I think the interior. It's a high point. Yeah, I mean to kind of use this as a transition to the exterior. I think the interior is a modern defender. I think the rear of the vehicle is a modern defender. Is a modern defender. I don't like the front end. Yeah. Um, I I not only have concerns. I like to fit some kind of steel bumper. Two vehicles for, you know, animal strike protection. The winch package that it does look like a plastic bull bar. The driver trainers told me it's actually steel underneath. That's right. Um, They just have to metal underneath. Yeah, they have to consider. You got to realize, guys, they're designing this car for the next 10 or 15 years in a time when things are going to be going electric and a time when things are going to be going autonomous. Pedestrian Um, pedestrian safety safety is is a thing. But Europe is now leading the world in terms of emissions and and impact safety. So we're, we're going to see that stuff come over. And why is it a bad thing that if you hit a pedestrian, they don't die? Like, why are people sticking to their guns on this? Like, that kind of makes you sound like a sociopath. Like... True. I just think that they could have carried some of that design language from the rear of the vehicle and the interior of the vehicle to the front of the vehicle. And I'll be specific so that it doesn't just sound like amorphous, right? So I don't like the fact that the round headlight is cut in the top top 25% of it. If if they had retained an entirely round headlight like the original Defender, that would have helped. I think it looks a little bit sad or angry like it, it gives it kind of looks like the jeep angry eye it grill do, it does and um, i don't think that that was i don't think that that was necessary and i think things just like that where if they had given it a full round headlight if you look at the new g class it's almost imperceptible between unless you know what you're looking for between a 2020 g class and the previous model because they retain so much of the of the design language and yeah. they still meet the, the pedestrian safety requirements. Yeah. Once you get into design, it it's just so subjective. Pers- and it's personal opinion. Obviously, given the fact that I drive a classic Defender and that I've owned a lot of Land Rovers, I wanted the front end to look a certain way and it didn't quite it didn't quite match the other vehicles in the lineup and it didn't quite match the rest of the design language in the vehicle. So I suspect the aftermarket yeah. will address that, and that would be kind yeah, of neat to see yeah. how the aftermarket addresses that. Uh-huh. It'll be really interesting to see what comes of it. I, I am grateful to see that there is a factory optioned. Yeah, Warren winch. Zeon winch with synthetic line. Correct. And yeah. you can you can see the line. You can a see lot better the drums. Yeah. And the even the recovery points, they were all designed to take three times gross vehicle weight rating. That's really impressive. That's huge. So rated recovery points is properly rated. And the rear ones closed, are like yeah. closed loop. I'm evaluating the vehicle on merit. Matt's evaluating the vehicle on merit. On merit the vehicle is quite good. And that's the yeah. important thing. The aftermarket will address the headlights. At yeah. Some point, when, when we saw it a few months before, before release, I remember one of the engineers telling me, I want to, you know, I want to say it was a 25 or 50 millimeter subframe lip drop yes. you know, to, to lift the vehicle. And it was capable of fitting 35s. They wouldn't have that fact or know that if it hadn't been if tried. They had, if they hadn't tried it. So exactly. don't forget there's the special vehicles division. There's SVX or whatever yeah. they call it now. There's going to be fun. This is round one. There's going to be fun stuff that's going to come. I'm sure uh, Land Rover will address that. All right. So we're going to move on to capacity. And that's just going to, we're going to give you guys some specs because it's important. On capacity, I gave it a, a 4.25 to 4.5. It's class leading capacity. So I'd maybe even strongly on the 4.5, but you've got up to a 1900 pound payload. That's like nothing else in the class. It's nearly double the payload of a Wrangler. So you're actually buying a vehicle that can take some stuff. Some real stuff. Some real stuff. I mean, like extra fuel, extra tires, equipment that you need to go remote. 
My it Raptor ha- had a 1,000 pound payload. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so but, nearly twice the payload yeah, of a Raptor. Yeah, that's more than a Ram Rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, we just looked at those. It's 1,900 cl- pounds is like really impressive, guys. It's more than a 200 series Land Cruiser. It's more than anything in the class or even associated classes. It is very, very good payload rating, uh, which I give Land Rover. Uh, so much credit and respect for dynamic roof load rating of 370 pounds, which is again, class leading. There's nothing that's even close, which means full rack, full roof tent. I'm not suggesting that people do that by the way, but it has the capability of doing that, which means that Land Rover has certified the vehicle to take that kind of roof load rating, which is with swerve tests and everything. It means it has to pass all the aggressive with that. It has to pass all these dynamic tests with all that weight on top, which means if you don't run a bunch of weight on top, the vehicle is going to exceed your expectations on handling. And then the last one is towing, 8,200 pound towing capacity. It's better than any midsize truck. It rivals most half ton trucks, like yep. full size half ton trucks. Nothing in the class that's even close. And I think I, I get a sense towing. that it'll handle it quite well too. Yeah. Longer wheelbase with that air suspension. Depending on, you know, your tongue weight for a trailer, it's, you're, you're not going to be squatting in the rear end nope. like a traditional, a, a traditional spring. And so. the engineers shared with us that they built in all of the tow, uh, towing aids into the vehicle. So it's going to control trailer sway and also manage that tongue weight very well because of the air suspension. We're getting close to wrapping things up a little bit here, but we're going to talk uh, real quickly about durability and reliability. It is difficult for Matt and I to rate this because these are pre-production units and we also don't have a lot of time with the vehicles. I will talk about durability in the sense that you can, if you look under the car and you look at the skid plating and you look at the size of the A-arms and you look at the things that we did with it. Now, it's not just that Matt did this trip and then I did this trip. There was, I believe, eight waves total. Eight waves. So and these not same, easy terrain. Yeah. So these same vehicles are being abused over eight cycles. And we did not see any structural component failures so far yeah. of these vehicles. So I think that durability is actually going to be very good when it is compared yeah. to any Land I mean, Rover before it. I mean, looking just, I went and did a, you know, kind of a cursory search on Land Rover forums for durability issues with LR3 and LR4. You know, there's some concerns with, you know, the, the fluid filled bushings, bushings that yeah. they're using, but those are all, they're at a hundred thousand miles. Or more. Um, a, a lot of vehicles have to have the bushings replaced at that junction. Bushings are larger on these vehicles, a larger, larger diameter. I mean, some of these things look like medium truck duty components. I mean, they, they are they're they're large. Um, the lower control arm ball joint is something that I have a figure on. That's actually five millimeters larger than Discovery, mm-hmm. and there's no real problems with Discovery. I mean, I've taken Discovery, Range Rover Sport, full size Range Rover through. Hell's Revenge and Poison Spider and the Waterfall and all that kind of stuff with no issues. They just, um, they just don't they just don't break. I don't believe you're going to see durability issues with this vehicle. I think that there's the potential for it. So I don't want to stake a rating on it yet because we just don't we simply don't know yeah. yet. But I do believe that looking at the vehicle and seeing what it endured with a bunch of of uh, media drivers, I think it's I think it's pretty impressive. I mean, I watched some people have some pretty major events with these cars um, where they weren't planning ahead as drivers and and the vehicles survived it. So I think that that says a lot. But as you said, like we only really spent, I mean, three big days, but three big days is is different than a year of having one and really evaluating it. Obviously these cars are going to be looked after each night and any any small issues they're going to, they're going to fix. They did have mechanics. I don't see any any cause for concern? Yeah, not on the durability side. On the reliability side, I think that's definitely the elephant in the room. It's something that we got to spend a few minutes talking about, but I think there's a lot of good news on reliability with Land Rover. I I did some research on reliability around Land Rover and from 2003, which is the earliest JD Power uh, report that I can find, and that is going to be the number of defects per 100 vehicles. So in 2003, Land Rover had 441 defects per 100 vehicles, and it was the other than Kia, it had the worst reliability rating in the makeup. But if you look at 2020, Land Rover has reduced that number by over half. 
and if you compare it to Toyota from 2003. So now this is this is stretching a little bit and I yeah, want to make Yeah, it's a bit of a weird thing, but it makes sense. I think I think if you if if everybody kind of listens to me for a moment and looks at it from, with an open mind because I don't want to have any confirmation bias here, but I do want to at least posit this consideration. In 2003, Toyota had 201 defects per 100 vehicles. In 2020, Land Rover has 220 defects per 100 vehicles. So that's only 9% more than Toyota of nearly 20 years ago. But if you think about it, how much Land Rover has improved. And if you think about a 2003 Tacoma, 2003 Gen 3 Forerunner, 2003 100 Series Land Cruiser. The Tundra. Which, the Tundra, which, which is, is extremely super re- reliable. Very reliable. So you can almost say that a Land Rover of today is as reliable as a Toyota of 2003. Now, that's not saying you take a 2003 Toyota and you're looking at the reliability 20 years later. No. If you compare apples to apples and you're just changing the dates they are nearly the same yeah. reliability rating no they've they've really improved and everybody's working on reliability everybody recognizes that it's a key selling attribute i mean, I mean for the swan song of the internal combustion engine it better be reliable otherwise what was the point <laughs> yeah exactly Might as, yeah so what's your summary on the vehicle Matt? it's it's a good vehicle i mean class leading off-road ride quality, I would say. The interior is very nice. The technical performance really surprised me. I was expecting a jacked up Discovery and those multi-stage airbags really are an innovation. And, you know, the world has changed. When the when the series came out in, what, 1948, we had just defeated the Nazis like King George was in, you know, was the monarch. Most of the world hadn't even seen a, a vehicle, yeah. right? Since then, we've gone to the moon. We've we've done a lot of really cool stuff, and I think and Land Rover needs to be a different brand. They can't make the least expensive, most simple four wheel drive yeah. anymore. England's there, expensive. There it's are, always yeah. going to be an expensive place. We have the Hilux made in Thailand. We have Japanese manufacturing. We have in the United States. Unless you've traveled extensively, you probably wouldn't have even seen a lot of the Chinese vehicles that are coming out in Africa. You still see a lot of Toyotas, but you're starting to see great walls and you're starting to see these things. Land Rover lost the utility market decades ago. It's a a marvel that the Defender was made as long as it was. So that was a blessing in disguise. I look at the new Defender as being in sync. The Defender realistically should have had more updates and it wouldn't have needed to be as drastic, but yeah, yeah it ended up being uh, revolutionary, not evolutionary. And I think that that is why people are resisting. Yeah. Some of the traditionalists are resisting the vehicle more for me. It's got class leading payload, class leading driver comfort. It, it has got excellent technical terrain performance. I would say one of the wider breadths of capabilities. So higher speed on the dirt, lower speed technical terrain. If you look at the vehicle on its merits, I think it's one of the best Land Rovers ever made. Uh, I think that people get hung up on the name. I think if you get hung up on the name, just call it an LR6. Call it whatever you want to call it and judge the vehicle on its merits. And overall, I think that it's going to sell well. I think that if it proves to be reliable and durable, it will sell well in the long term. And I think the cons, just a few, I think that this straight six model we're going to get isn't going to fit an 18 inch wheel. And I'd like to see that's a bummer. I'd like to see Land Rover address that because I think it's going to be really important for people's expectations are impossible to get off red tires for. Yeah. So good ones. I think that's going to affect driver expectations. And then I think uh, I'd like to see them improve the braking a little bit, prove the brake modulation a little bit. And then it's going to be interesting to see how the aftermarket responds. If the aftermarket responds favorably and there's a bunch of cool parts for it, this thing's going to be a hit with a lot of folks. And uh, Matt and I are going to do our little, we're going to do our little build sheets on these vehicles. So you can see how if, we would if, do them. If Matt was going to buy a Defender, what he would choose, you'll see that in the show notes. And then the same for me. And we're going to have some additional information in the show notes as well. And then keep an eye out on expeditionportal.com uh, when the embargo lifts the 24th. Is it 25th? A, 25th of March. That's when this podcast is dropping. Um, look at expeditionportal.com for our very detailed overview and review of the vehicle where we'll go into additional information more than what we did in this podcast. And we will talk to yeah, you. Yeah, I all. do have one okay. more con. One more. And con. I've pointedly left it for the end. Land Rover, if you listen to this, 
why did you put plastic tread plate on the hood, on the fenders that can't actually be stepped on? (laughs) And on that note, we'll see you all later. Thank you for listening.